Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Stone Pages Archie News Podcast, episode number 262. I'm your host, Philip Hansen. Now, before I get into today's stories, I would like to remind you that, of course, as always, all of these stories in today's podcast are found from various places around the web. And to find the sources for all of today's stories, as well as any that we may have missed, you can go to news.stonepages.com. So, without further ado, let's get to the stories. We start off with a lack of Stonehenge stories, so instead we talk about henge types, specifically ones found in Wales. And we have ancient skulls suggesting multiple migrations into the Americas, regardless of any wall. Then we get our art history on with a pointless technique being discovered in France. After that, we have horsemen riding into Europe, much like the Mongols and the Huns have done in their own time. Then we have a story containing Clovis culture, Ice Age fauna, and cosmic impacts, a delightful little mystery. After that, we have a prostate or prostrate menhir being found in Italy. Then we have some Bronze Age weapons from Scotland, which are unique in their very own regard. Then we discover the original source of violence for humans. And last, but certainly not least, we have something new, a review for an app for any of you megalithomaniacs written by our very own Diego Miozzi. All that in this podcast. Now, let's get to it. And now for our first story of today's podcast, uh, because we don't have a Stonehenge story as per se, we have a Henge-type story instead, with a possible Henge discovered around an ancient Welsh burial chamber. Now, a team of archaeologists who were led by a researcher from the University of Bristol have uncovered the remains of a possible Stonehenge-type prehistoric earthwork monument in a field in Pembrokeshire, Wales. Now, members of the Welsh Rock Art Organization have been investigating the area around the Neolithic burial chamber, known as Trelly Fiant, dating back at least 6,000 years and is in the care of the Welsh Heritage Agency Cadwin. The site itself is compromised of two stone chambers, one of which is intact, with each chamber being set within the remains of an earthen cairn or mound that has sadly slowly eroded due to either plowing regimes or just, in general, you know, wear and tear. The capstone that covers the southeastern chamber have at least 50 engraved cup marks, which makes it only one out of the nine known Neolithic burial ritual monuments in Wales that have prehistoric rock on it. Now, lead project director from the Department of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Bristol, Dr. George Nash, and his team have conducted a series of non-intrusive surveys in and around the monument. These include, and are not limited to, magnetometry, which covered the 80 square meters around the monument, and a detailed earthwork survey of the monument itself. Now, the geophysical survey did uncover some anomalies, which are considered to be more than likely the buried prehistoric features. Dr. Nash said, To the south and southwest of the stone chamber and appearing to run underneath the southern section of the Trelefant Mound are two clear circular anomalies. It is regarded that this feature may possibly be a henge, otherwise referred to as a hanging form, measuring around 12 meters in diameter. It is not clear if this feature processes an accompanying ditch, however, a circular anomaly extends around this feature. Again, we are unclear of the relationship, if any, with the smaller circle. Only excavation will tell. It is important to note that the henge monuments in question are not the only things in the area. There are other subsurface features, which are of a probable later date in the prehistoric era. Dr. Nana said, The next stage of the project will include targeted excavation over recognized anomalies identified from the magnetometry survey. Before we do this, we will be widening the geophysics area and apply resistivity as well as further magnetometry over a wider area. 
The fieldwork around the Henge will take place between April 21st and 23rd. For further details on how to get involved, visit the Welsh Rock Art Organization's Facebook page, which you can find a link to from the news.stonepages.com website. And following our story on the possible henge type in Wales, let's go to the Americas, where ancient skulls suggest there were multiple migrations into the Americas. The research was done by institutions in the US, Europe, and South America, and they all found evidence that suggests that native people of South America likely arrived from more than one place. For many years, it has been believed that there was a single wave of ancient immigrants who made their way from Asia to North America and then eventually all the way down to South America. To study whether or not this hypothesis actually was true, the researchers studied some of the ancient skulls found in South America, specifically at Lagoa Santa in Brazil. Prior research had dated the skulls back to between 7,000 and 10,000 years ago, which is near the time when the scientists believe South America was first populated by humans. From this area, they found that the skull shapes of the ancient people differed markedly from those of the modern indigenous South Americans. Now, apart from the study in Brazil, one of the group was also part of a study in Mexico where they imaged 500 to 800-year-old skulls from two of the three distinct regions in Mexico, and 500 to 800 years ago, for those interested, is pre-conquest. Now, it is worth noting that two of these skulls uh, matched one another, but not the third skull. Now, experts in this field have discussed that there must be at least one wave of immigrants who came across the Bering Strait, though some suggested other immigrants may have arrived from Australia. Now, the nature and the timing of the immigration to the Americas is a subject of intense debate, and it is unclear whether or not the high levels of diversity we see in South America is a result of multiple migrations. Previous studies and hypotheses as a result have focused largely on alternative gene flow models with conflicting or inconclusive results. However, this latest effort shows that the Paleo-Americans share at least one common ancestor with contemporary Native American groups outside of the Americas, suggesting that the continents were populated by multiple waves from Northeast Asia throughout the late Pleistocene and early Holocene periods. And now, ladies and gentlemen, for some art news, specifically on the pointillist technique being discovered on engravings in France. This comes to us from our Ignatian artist who decorated several newly discovered limestone blocks 38,000 years ago using small dots to create the illusion of a larger image. If this sounds familiar to you, you know a lot more about art than I do because this is actually used by something called pointillist painters in the 19th century, or at least in the later 19th century. Now, these stones have been adorned with images of mammoths and horses, which adds to the previous isolated discoveries from the Côte de where they found rhinoceri and they were formed by the application of thousands of dots first painted on the palm of the hand and then transferred to the cave wall. Earlier this year, the excavation team leader and New York University anthropologist Randall White and his colleagues also reported finding the image of an aurochs, which is the earliest known graphic imagery found in western Eurasia. The most recent discovery is a woolly mammoth in the same style in a rock shelter of the same period known as Abrisidia, near the previous find site of Abri Blanca. Now, Abri Celia has long been on the archaeologist's list of major rock art sites and has been attributed to the European Argnasian. Now, excavations in 1927 yielded 15 engraved and or pierced limestone blocks, which is a key point of reference for the study of Argnasian art in the region. 
Now in 2014, White and his colleagues returned to the site, seeking a better understanding of the archaeological sequence and relationship to other similar sites. Now in 2014, White and his colleagues returned to the site to seek a better understanding of its archaeological sequence and relationship to similar sites, though they were not prepared for the discovery of the 16 stone blocks, 15 of which had been left behind by the excavation team in 1927 in case there might actually be something inscribed on these stones. Now, thanks to White and his team, as well as their discoveries, they have increased the known sample of earliest graphic arts in southwestern France by 40% over the past decade. And now, seeing as we did discuss the immigration into the Americas, it is also worth discussing the immigration into Europe. However, this migration is a little bit newer, and it was done during the Bronze Age some 5,000 years ago by horsemen, and not the four horsemen of the apocalypse, actually several horsemen from the Yamnaya tribes. Research has recently discovered that early Bronze Age men from vast grasslands of Eurasia uh, swept into Europe on horseback some 5,000 years ago, and this mostly male migration continued for several generations. Now, Europeans are the descendants of at least three major prehistoric migrations, hunter-gatherers being the first some 37,000 years ago, farmers after that from Anatolia some 9,000 years ago, and finally, the nomadic herders known as the Yamnaya, which is an early Bronze Age culture from modern-day Russia and Ukraine, who swept into Europe some 5,000 to 4,800 years ago, and along with them, they brought metallurgy and animal herding skills as well as the possibility of bringing the Proto-Indo-European language, which is the ancestor to all of today's 400 Indo-European languages. Now, apparently, these men were quite busy, as they immediately interbred with descendants of both the farmers and the hunter-gatherers. So, I guess somebody was under time pressure. Within a few hundred years, uh, the research shows that the Amnaya contributed to at least half of Central European genetic ancestry, I guess much in the same way that Genghis Khan did during the Middle Ages. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the story, there is a um, talk of a mostly male migration, and this is because researchers have analyzed the difference in the ratio of inherited DNA, finding that it was somewhat equal between men and women during the Anatolian farmers' migration into Europe, but between 5 and 14 men for every one woman in the Amnaya migration, as in the horsemen riding in. Now, it is worth noting that it is notoriously difficult to estimate the ratio of men to women accurately in ancient populations. However, if confirmed, one explanation could be that the Yamnaya men were warriors who arrived on horses or drove their horse-drawn wagons into Europe. This would have made the Yamnaya men more attractive as they brought not only horses but also new technologies such as copper hammers and metallurgy in general, which was not available during the time. Now, due to the extent of the migration lasting over several generations and the mostly male uh, immigration that we see, it has been suggested that there are two possibilities as to why they left. And they are the typical explanations that we see even during the Roman eras or the Viking period. The first suggestion is, of course, that not all was right back at home, so therefore they left to set up new colonies, or these bands of men were being sent to establish new politically aligned colonies in the distant lands, much like I mentioned, the Romans and the Vikings did during their own periods. And now for a Ice Age story, which I think is probably one of the older stories that I've covered on the podcast, and the cosmic impact. And for once, we're actually talking about a result that's not the 
end of a long line of research with a positive result. Rather, it is the absence of some evidence, namely diamonds. Diamonds have been found missing in rock samples from sites spanning a portion of North America from the Channel Islands of Pacific California to the Midwestern creeks of Oklahoma. Now, the lack of diamonds is important because it disproves the hypothesis of the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, according to Dr. Tyrone Dalton of Washington University in St. Louis, USA. Now, the hypothesis of the Younger Dryas event relies on the sudden cooling of the Earth 12.9 thousand years ago as a result of dust in the atmosphere due to widespread wildfires after the impact of a meteorite, comet, or other celestial object. This would have led to an extinction of animals such as the mammoth and the mastodon, as well as the decline of the Clovis culture. However, while the impact theory has been shown to not hold any water or ice, as the case may be, there is no doubt that there was some form of cold snap. This is definitely agreed upon by experts. However, the most widely held theory is that it was caused by changes in ocean currents and climate patterns following a rapid influx of fresh water from the melting glaciers at the end of the Ice Age. Now, supporters of the impact theory base their evidence on something much smaller than a glacier, namely nano-sized diamond crystals, which are produced by the high-energy impact of any celestial object. Now, Dr. Dalton, who undertook the study himself, is known for his research into the formation of diamonds in space, such as during the birth of stars. However, he managed to conclude that the nano-diamond evidence reported by the impact proponents is not what is a true diamond. It's actually called a hypothetical diamond um, and is a phase of carbon called N-diamonds or I-carbon, which also just the existence of these is very controversial. Now, these tiny spheres were observed by Dalton, and he explains why they may actually have been misconstrued as being diamonds. Now, as I said, they're hypothetical diamonds, and gentlemen, I really, really don't advise you to buy hypothetical diamonds for your wives or girlfriends. That is not a good idea. But, uh, as you know, diamonds are pure carbon. However, these are not. Instead, they contained nanoparticles of copper and copper oxide, which can scatter light and electrons into diffraction patterns, which are nearly identical to those attributed to the hypothetical carbon structures. Now, ladies and gentlemen, as we talk about the huge prostate or prostrate menhir discovered in northern Italy, I promise I will try not to laugh. This menhir was discovered by Andrea Romita, Bruno Calatroni, Stefano Albiateri, Paolo Chiama, and Aldo Umarino of the Accio Nevia Research Group, and they announced that they discovered a 5-meter-tall menhir, which was hidden under the vegetation around the Siboga area near Imperia, Liguria, Italy. Now, the huge monument currently lies in the ground, but it is believed to have been cut from a single block of quartz sandstone rock and would have weighed at least 6 tons. It measures 5.22 meters by 125 meters at the base. Gigantic stone fell from the original erect position, possibly due to natural causes, though there are other causes that will be discussed a little bit later. On the side that is currently facing upwards, there have been small cup marks, and uh, the discoverers of the stone believe that these were carved in prehistoric times to assess the sacrality of the stone. Now, it is also evident that it was very difficult getting the rock into position, as there have been signs of carving and tapering at the bottom of the stone as to ease its insertion into a holding socket. Now, other standing stones have been found in the area, but the vast majority were discovered lying on the ground due to both the action of local Benedictine monks that would have knocked the stones over due to them being a pagan symbol, and also just, you know, wear and tear. 
the ground area itself is also very steep and hard, so it is difficult to create a hole deep and strong enough to keep a stone in a standing position. Now I have actually tried figuring out what a prostate veneer is, and I have been actually able to find a little bit, but they only talk about it as being a prostate veneer or prostate stone, and I have no idea actually what it really is. So if any of you guys know, feel free to contact me at philip at stonepages.com so we can figure out for next time. And now it's time for some Bronze Age weapons being found in Scotland. Now, during the construction of two football fields in Scotland, uh, there was uncovered a rare Bronze Age weapon hoard, which included a Bronze Age sword and a gold-decorated spearhead. The weapons likely date from between 1000 to 800 BCE, and were found among a pit alongside a Bronze Age roundhouse, which had been dug into the remnants of a much older Neolithic structure, which was a rectangular timber hall, the largest ever found in Scotland. Now, the excavations first reveal pits and post holes in the soil, which is signs of an ancient construction, and the weapon cache was found late in the day, so the archaeologists removed a 80-kilo clod of earth from the ground with the artifacts inside and then spent a week working on it in their laboratory. This is actually quite common, uh, especially if you're running out of time on excavation. Some people will actually remove the entire thing and then take it off so they can excavate it slowly. Inside the clod of earth, there was found a decorated bronze spearhead, bundled with a bronze sword with a lead and tin pommel, a bronze scabbard mount, a chape, which is a metal fitting at the end of a scabbard, and a bronze pin. The sword was found to have notches in its blades, and the socket of the spearhead looks as if it was used with multiple wooden shafts. Now, typically, weapon hordes like this are not found in the ground. They are typically found in rivers or bogs, where they are placed as sacrifices. Now, around the UK, there are a few similar spearheads having been discovered. There is a couple from Ireland, one in England, and then there is another gold-decorated spearhead in Scotland, which was found in 1963, about 19 kilometers from the latest find. The team hopes to analyze the metals to learn where the materials originated from, and it is believed that the lead may have come from the south of Scotland, the gold from Ireland, and the tin from Cornwall. Now, the tin would be especially interesting, as Cornwall lies in the extreme southwest of England, the opposite side of the island. <laughs> now, the spearhead is actually interesting, but it's not the most notable part of the excavation. There was actually found organic materials on the spear, which were remnants of fur-bearing skin around the spearhead. There was also microscopic fragments of textiles around the bronze pin, as well as a pieces of the sword's wooden scabbard, all of which can be radiocarbon dated. Now, the excavation did find 12 Bronze Age buildings, and it is not known whether these were villages or single homes occupied and abandoned over a period of time. Most Bronze Age dwellings that are found are single homes, so the discovery of a village would also be of great importance. And now for our second to last story, which has shown that a scarcity of resources led to violence in prehistoric California. This is the result of a study done by archaeology professor Mark Allen, who says that there are two views related to the origins of violence and warfare in humans. One, that earlier humans were peaceful and lived in harmony, and another, that there was always a sort of competition for resources, war, and violence. Now, Allen's study has confirmed the second view, uh, specifically studying prehistoric hunter-gatherers in central California. For his study, he used a archaeological database of human burials and remains from thousands of individuals going back more than 1,000 years. And with the help of his colleagues, Allen looked at the marks from physical traumas, comparing that evidence with the paleo environment and the way those communities were organized socially. 
What they found was that California had one of the highest population densities in all of North America, with lots of small groups living in close proximity, and that there was approximately 100 different languages spoken in California at the time. So, actually, quite a large group and perfect for the study, I definitely say. Allen is quoted saying that when people are stressed out and worried about protecting the group, they are willing to be aggressive. Violence is about resources for the group. The study also showed how the scarcity of resources correlated with an increased level of violence, and on average, about seven percent of the population at the time had evidence of forced traumas, five percent for females and eleven percent for males, according to Allen. And this is actually a level of violent trauma not even reached during World War II. Allen's research on the origins of violence and warfare speaks to what is happening in modern times, according to him. Saying that it's important to study it because if we're ever going to have hope of stopping it, we have to know the cause. If we want to reduce conflict, we need to figure out what to do about the resource stress. Now, it would be interesting to see whether or not this level of trauma actually decreases once we go from hunter-gatherers to farmers, and then even less so after the、uh, next level of、uh, resource management. And now for our final story of today, we have an app review written by Diego himself. And I would like to note before I read the review that this was a friendly ad. This is not a paid advertisement. We have not received money in any way from this. As Diego said, it is better just to have normal ads than paid ads. So let's get to it. And just a small apology. This may sound very flat compared to how I normally talk. But I am going to try to read this as verbatim as possible to ensure that I give Diego's writing style the full effect. It's been many years since we started walking on a parallel roads with our longtime friend Annie Burnham, the creator of the megalithic portal. Recently, he put the gigantic effort of his well-known community of megalithomaniacs on a tiny, useful app that runs on Apple iPhones and iPads. Simply titled "Pocket Guide Megaliths," it is part of a larger series of tourist guides created by the UK firm Synet Mobile. The strong point of this guide is the huge database of almost 50,000 worldwide sites created thanks to the collaboration of thousands of contributors of the megalithic portal. To keep its database as up to date as possible, after the first launch of the app, a large dataset from the portal is getting downloaded and stored on the device, which is a rather unusual but clever task for a self-contained app. Doing so, the app does allow later navigation to the sites without a data connection. The map view takes you directly to the UK. It should be better to display the user's current location, but this is an option available on a separate menu anyway, and clearly shows all the ancient sites as pins with different icons related with any kind of monument or museum. Of course, users can drag the map to any other country to see the distribution of all sites stored in the database. Descriptions and the main photos are taken from the megalithic portal, and there is a wide selection of filters by type, by country, and by properties, including axis, accuracy, and condition, so to pinpoint exactly the kind of ancient monuments we are looking for. Text searches are fast. There are useful functions as weather forecast, torch and compass, using the device's own hardware, solar slash lunar phases, and rising slash setting times, and the possibility to add custom notes and bookmark sites. Of great help is also a nice range and height finder, useful to calculate the height of a monument, knowing its distance from the observer, or the distance knowing its height. The Megaliths app may not look exceedingly polished, as it seems to be based on a template shared by other apps of the Pocket Guide series. 
but it's easy to use and navigate. Its best selling point is the extensive database of sites and the convenience to keep all the information in a tiny package that is easy to carry around without the need of a constant data connection. Members of the Megalithic Portal Society are entitled to a free copy of the app that is also available on the Apple iTunes Store for £1.99, one ninety-nine euros, or $1.99. All in all, it sounds like a very great app. I wish I had an iPhone so I could try it out for myself, but I sadly don't. Uh, for anybody who loves Megaliths, I'm sure that this is a fantastic tool. And even as an archaeologist, I can definitely see the idea of using this for our own further studies, and maybe even helping update it ourselves. Alright, ladies and gentlemen, and with that last story, we have now reached the end of our podcast, sadly. If you have any comments, questions, concerns, or you know what a prostate veneer is, feel free to send me an email at philip at stonepages.com. That is P-H-I-L-I-P at stonepages.com. For any news that we missed and the sources to all of the stories that we did cover and the ones that we did miss, go to news.stonepages.com to find the links to all of our different stories as well as any of the sources. You can also, like I said, find the link to the app mentioned in the previous story. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I must sadly say goodbye for this time, and I will see you next time.